If you love what you hear, check out our authors Andrea Stewart and N.A. Fulton on Amazon.com, and be sure to subscribe to our Dark Romance Novels and Stories podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast provider. Learn more about us at audioiron.com. Pirate's Desire by Andrea Stewart. Chapter 5. Corwin haunted the vast rose garden that framed Christina's townhouse in the cold pre-dawn. After a silent carriage ride with Christina and hours spent tossing and turning in a bed that seemed to be made of nails, she had welcomed the first hint of light in the sky as divine permission to escape a bitter confinement. She had thrown a cloak over her nightgown pulled on ancient riding boots she had brought with her from the West Country, and slipped out of the house through the drawing-room door like a thief in the night. She now wished for all the world she could steal a horse from the stables and ride like the wind for home. She had no doubt that Norfolk would carry out his threat to harm Ben. He could certainly stop his departure by arranging for her brother's command to be taken away. With Ben trapped in England Norfolk would have all the time in the world to arrange for his untimely demise. Norfolk could do this just as easily as he could arrange for the Earl of Kettering's arrest and hanging. He could destroy anyone if he so desired. Though Ben and Corwin both enjoyed a certain income from the family estate and their parents' prudent investments, they could mount no defence at all against someone with Norfolk's resources. There was no one of any significance in London who was not related to Norfolk by blood or tied to him by time and circumstance. If Corwin told Ben anything like the truth of her situation, he would doubtless call out Lord Norfolk. And if that duel didn't kill him, he would call out Lord Black. Either man might kill her brother. Both were quite dangerous men indeed. Corwin had run through her few options over and over again, always returning to the same solution. She must go to the Earl of Kettering. The man would hang unless he found a way to stop Norfolk. Perhaps, if he knew of his imminent arrest he would murder Norfolk as some said he had his uncle. Perhaps he would call Norfolk out as any decent gentleman might. Perhaps he would flee England, returning from whence he had come. That, at least, would eliminate one of the threats facing her brother. But time was of the essence. Norfolk had promised to have Black arrested in only three days' time. If Black were in prison he would be of no use to her at all. So Corwin had to take action today to forestall the end of her world. On the other hand, Black lived on the other side of London. How on earth could she reach Black in time? When the sun finally floated over the horizon she came in from the garden. Boots muddy, clothes sodden, she climbed the servant's stair to her room. There she swiftly bathed and changed into an old grey gown she hadn't worn since her first week in the city. Christina could not have been more surprised by Corwin's early morning demand to go shopping. The clock had barely struck eight when the young girl had flown into her room to demand an early trip to Bond Street to buy a brand new gown. Quite happily still abed with warm chocolate and cold toast on a tray beside her, Christina was hard-pressed not to ask her little cousin if she had lost her tiny mind. 
The ominous grey of the morning did not bode well for the condition of the roads. Clearly rain would be falling hard and heavy by mid-afternoon. Thus this was a day to stay inside, to read, and to correspond. Christina had no desire at all to be out and about, and quite frankly after last night's contretemps at the club she was starting to doubt Paulwyn had enough good sense to be allowed out of the house. Why on earth had the girl taken it into her head to wander the halls of the club? It was exactly the kind of behavior sure to excite more questions about secret assignations and the quality of her character. The weather looks quite inclement, my dear. This is a good day to stay in and stay warm. Not one that lends itself to wandering the lanes. Christina said carefully. That is why we must go now cousin. By afternoon the streets will be swimming in mud. Corwin argued. Which is why we should not venture out at all. Christina replied. But I have nothing to wear for the Lantry affair at the end of the week. Everything I own makes me look like a little girl. A country cousin. But I saw a dress last night. The most perfect thing. If we go now I can find the pattern and choose the cloth. It can be made for me just in time. Please, Christina. If you will not go with me then let me set out with one of the maids. I know exactly what I want to buy. Corwin's hand ringing and pacing to and fro made Christina wonder if she were about to cry. My dear you are being quite ridiculous. She said matter-of-factly. I cannot send you wandering the world with merely a maid. And if you and I set out on this venture I shall insist we turn back at the first drop of rain. I will not wade in a foot of mud to buy myself a gown. I surely shall not do so to buy you one. But you will take me? We can go before it rains? If you really cannot be dissuaded. Thank you so much. You cannot know how much this means. Please get up and I'll go tell the coachman we will be down within the hour. We will be back before midday. And then Corwin rushed out the door as if the devil himself were after her. Christina stared after her feeling both extreme irritation and amusement. For the first time she was truly annoyed by her young cousin. Yet there had been moments in her own life when a new dress or a new hat had seemed the most important thing in the world. Perhaps this was just such a time for her new wild country rose. Maybe Corwin had finally come to care what people thought of her. Corwin found it was no mean accomplishment to pretend to look at fabric while Christina watched her every move. In the first shop, which carried lawn and linen, Christina waited near the door peering intermittently out the window as if longing to go home. She had refused to look at pattern books and dressmakers' dolls and had not wanted to discuss sleeves or lace. Desperate for an opportunity to escape, Corwin had demanded to go to another shop, halfway down the street, that carried brightly colored silks from the The Orient. There she had asked to have bolt after bolt brought until half the store's wares were piled on a table. Then she had demanded to see all the dressmaker's dolls and sketches. She chose to become one of the spoiled ninnies she had seen terrorize store owners and dressmakers a thousand times. Eventually she manufactured such an uproar that Christina had to step in. Gathering several of the sketches she asked Corwin a dozen questions. Eventually, with her help, Corwin described a dress she had never seen and wasn't sure could be made. Then it was Christina who took over the onerous task of explaining the gown she said she wanted to those who owed the store. As soon as she took her eyes off Corwin, the younger girl slipped out of the shop and walked briskly down the street. She then took the first right she could, then the next left which led her down an alley. She continued following random twists and turns until she had lost herself in this city she had come to fear so much. She hoped she looked like a lady's maid or a governess fulfilling her duties before the rain drove her home. 
It proved more difficult than Corwin could ever have imagined to hail a handsome cab. While there were a dozen or more always on Bond Street, she could hardly return there to hire one. So she wandered for almost two hours looking for someone who could take her where she thought she needed to go. When she found herself near the Covent Garden Market, she almost wept in relief. The first two drivers she spoke to refused to speak to her, and the third asked her for the address. Corwin had heard a thousand rumours about the Earl of Kettering. More than once she'd heard he roomed within sight of the tower on Cooper's Row. When she relayed this information and the driver spat on the ground by her feet. Get away we ye lass. Get ye home afore ye're caught in a gale. As if on cue, a heavy rain began to fall and lightning flashed in the sky. Coach after coach began rolling away. Only one driver, bent with age and labour remained, mounted atop an ancient carriage in bad repair. When she approached and offered up a handful of coins he studied her with bleary eyes. Then she told him the address. After an interminable wait he nodded over his shoulder at his carriage door. Almost weeping with relief, Corwin stepped up and inside, sat down, and let her head fall back against the cracked leather seats. As the coach rattled over the cobbles, and rain pounded on its roof, Corwin watched the sodden, sooty, city go by. This storm looked likely to last a week and the last thing Corwin wanted was to spend more than a moment with Black. She would leave almost as soon as she arrived. She doubted that he would make any effort to aid her in her journey home. Certainly there was no love lost between them. So she would likely spend the better part of the afternoon and evening struggling to find her way back to Christina's house. So it was that when the carriage finally clattered to a stop, Corwin lingered for a long moment in its relative warmth. Only a hard rap on the roof moved her to action. She opened the door into the storm, stepped down into the mud, and moved forward to pay the man who had driven her here. He took the coins she offered without descending from his perch and drove off without sparing her a word or a backward glance. As Corwin looked around she saw that the street had a series of storefronts, most old and worn, and one newly painted. As she approached she saw this one housed a shipping company. An unmarked door to the right of the shop had a brass knocker and a pair of new oil lamps hanging on either side. These were the only sign of life on the street. So, heart pounding in her chest, she walked through the mud and worse that filled the street. She stepped up onto the stone landing just outside the unmarked door and lifted the heavy knocker. She let it fall once, twice, then a third time. What a strange man the Earl was to live like a common tradesman over a shop on the most unfashionable street in the city. He was everything a gentleman shouldn't be. And somehow this lunatic was the only man on earth who might save her. Black's servant opened the door several minutes after her knock. After taking in the fact that she was the only one waiting outside, and apparently only mildly surprised to see a lone woman on his master's doorstep, the young red-haired servant stepped back to let her inside. Once she was in he shut the door and led her up the long flight of carpeted steps to a spacious parlour on the second floor. Corwin was sure she had never seen the servant before and yet he addressed her as Lady Chase when he offered her hot tea and fresh cakes by the fire. He told her that his master was not at home but was expected within the hour. He bade her take a seat in one of two armchairs close by the hearth, built up the coals, and offered her a warmed blanket to put in her lap. Then he disappeared returning a few minutes later with a tray heavily laden with tea, cakes, and a bowl of grapes. After that he withdrew closing the parlour door behind him. Curled in the deep chair, covered in the warm blanket, sated by hot tea and two pastries, Corwin was only dimly aware of how time passed. 
The licking flames of the fire reminded her of afternoons spent in her father's study where the pulse of the rain and the occasional crack of thunder had filled her with fantasies of magic and fairy folk. Why had she left her home and everything she cared about behind? It had been her love for Ben, his assurance that she would find a future at court, that had brought her here. How could he have known that he was putting both their lives on the line? It had been years since she had felt so young and so completely out of control. Not since those horror-filled days immediately after her parents' death. In those terrible hours she had wanted to follow them into the grave. She had not believed she could survive without them and without her elder brother. She knew now she could not live without Ben. He and Christina were all she had left. Darkness was at hand when Corwin realized that she was entirely alone in the flat. Where the servant had gone she could not imagine, but it had been fairly two hours since she had last seen him. Perhaps he lived elsewhere and had departed at an agreed-upon time to return to his own family. Perhaps he had gone to find his master. Still she was surprised he had not taken a moment to let her know he was leaving. Corwin looked out the wide parlor window. The rain had been falling hard for hours. The streets would be rivers of mud racing down to the Thames just a few lanes away. She would have to leave soon if she wanted to reach home before midnight. Ben and Christina were doubtless already frantic with worry. She rose and moved to the fire where she retrieved her sodden cloak. She shook it out and pulled it on over her shoulders. As she was stepping into shoes she heard the door below stairs open and close. She had time to stand and turn toward the parlor door as heavy steps came up the stairs. When the door flew open she was face to face with a fierce Lord Black. How she had haunted him. The little waif with coal black hair and sooty eyelashes. Devon Black felt a familiar tension stiffen his back and coil down his arms. His hands flexed, looking for the weight of his blade. Bloodlust? For a girl? That was a first. But if there were ever a woman he had a right to kill it was this one. You are a fool. He said as he removed his cloak and dropped it to the floor. He had just spent several hours on the turbulent Thames making preparations for his immediate departure, and now the girl had appeared on his doorstep. He had very reluctantly decided his revenge would have to wait. He had promised himself that he would be able to hunt her down in a few weeks, or a few years, to settle the score. Now his blood sang with the knowledge that he wouldn't have to. He would be able to punish her for throwing everything he had worked a lifetime for into the hazard. Norfolk is going to have you arrested, said Corwin. Her voice sounded childish and shrill even to her own ears. Midnight eyes and ebony hair caught the light of the fire. His broad shoulders were encased in a thin, white wet shirt and his legs in dark breeches and heavy boots. He was so strong and broadly built, his eyes so sharp and knowing. I wanted to warn you, she said. I wanted to warn you Norfolk is coming. You want me to murder him? Black replied sardonically. Corwin moved her head from side to side, all too aware she was lying to him about her purpose. He cocked his head a little to one side. A grim smile came to his lips. Again you think to play me for a fool. He said. I have no one else to turn to. She heard herself say. Henry will have you arrested and hung. They're coming for you. He told me last night. Corwin broke off. She wished for all the world that it had not come to this. She had no right to involve this man in her affairs again. This situation was none of his making. Norfolk's cruelty, his wealth, his power was laying waste to both their lives. Norfolk would never have chosen Black as a target but for her. She could feel the hate behind Black's stern facade, 
his contempt for her weakness. She had been mad to think he would do anything to protect her. I should never have come, my lord. I am sorry. I should never have involved you. I will find another way. Then she made for the door knowing that she did have another way. One she had never considered, but surely the most feasible of all. She would surrender her body to Norfolk and when the opportunity presented itself, she would kill him. She would drive the blade home herself. It would be her at the end of a rope at Newgate. And that was as it should be. She was willing to die in order to do what must be done. She strode toward the parlour door eager to leave this house now that her plan was clear in her mind. Lord Black's hand bit into her upper arm as she moved past. Ignoring her resistance he pulled her to him. He brought his lips to hers as if the first kiss they had shared in the garden were but a moment ago rather than weeks in the past. As he deepened the kiss, Corwin wondered if this could have been her intention all along. Had she wanted to take Black for her lover rather than Norfolk? Had she thought to use her body to bribe him? The Earl filled her senses. What Norfolk demanded of her she could never willingly yield to him. What this man demanded of her she was eager to provide. Was this love? Was this desire? Lust? Something even more base? She never wanted Lord Black to stop touching her. Black slowed his assault, then drew away to look into her eyes. His next kiss was slower and more probing. It compelled her response, her participation, in her own seduction. His arms had been iron bands around her, now they loosened and she felt one of his hands slide down her back to find her buttocks. He pressed her against him and she could feel the hard shape of his desire against her. She buried her head in his chest and felt the world fall away. Please. Corwin whispered. She did not know what she was begging for. Did she want him to stop or to continue? She knew the answer when he tilted her head back and his lips found the pulse of her throat. The sound of voices in the stairway came to Corwin's ears an instant before Black thrust her away from him. She sat down hard on the floor and then toppled onto her back, her muddy skirts flying. Then men were pouring into the room. The red-haired servant had reappeared, Corwin noted dully. The man stood just behind Lord Norfolk. His eyes averted from her lifted skirts and stockinged legs. Only when Ben also averted his eyes did Corwin realize how she must look displayed thus. Reflex drove her to cover herself, passion and curiosity melting into fear. They had come to find her. Ben and for some odd reason Norfolk. She saw Norfolk, a triumphant smile on his face, raise a pistol and point it at the Earl's chest. Step back dog. Norfolk's voice betrayed satisfaction rather than anger. How dare you take what never belonged to you. Corwin was unable to believe her ears. He let the ball fly as the words left his lips. Corwin screamed at the explosion, watched Black recoil as the bullet took him in the chest. She saw him drop to one knee. An instant later she saw Black had a blade in his hand. She watched it fly like a bird to bury itself deep in Norfolk's throat. Norfolk clutched at his neck and sank to the floor gurgling. Blood was pouring down his chest. There was a stunned silence, as though no one could quite fathom what had just occurred. Then Ben and the servant rushed to help Norfolk and the men they had brought with them fell upon Black. They pulled the Earl to his feet and dragged him toward the door. For just a moment Corwin found Black staring down at her, his eyes filled with hate. In that moment there was no one else in the room, just this great raging beast towering over her. Then he was pulled out of the room and down the stairs. Corwin found herself incredibly grateful for the darkness that finally claimed her. He's going to die?
Corwin could not believe her good fortune. What wonderful news. Try not to sound so hopeful. Christina shook her head. Norfolk is probably dead already. I am told he lost so much blood his flesh was the color of bone. You did not see him? Corwin sat up in her bed. Christina shook her head. With nearly a bow and no lace to enliven the dark gray gown, she might have been in mourning. His mother would not let me pass the front door. She holds you responsible for the entire affair. I didn't summon Henry to the Earl's apartments. I didn't threaten him or stalk him like an animal week after week. Her son is a monster of her making and if he died it was by his own hand. Corwin's disgust knew no bounds. She swears Henry truly loved you. Apparently he went to his uncle the Earl of Pembroke and confessed his intention to ask for your hand. Corwin put her hands over her ears. She could not bear to hear any more. It is impossible. Ben pulled the gown Corwin was folding out of her hands. What can you be thinking? Why should not I go? Corwin asked. I am hardly in danger of ruining my reputation. Standing in her bedroom, surrounded by open trunks and clothing, she waited for Ben to see reason. Virginia is no place for a young woman. There is no suitable society for you. Ben paced the floor. Suitable society will not of me. Corwin dropped another gown in a nearby trunk. Other women survive there. I shall as well. She told him, her eyes meeting his when he turned to face her. You asked why I should go? Shall I wait here for Lord Black to kill me? A man who can escape Newgate can certainly manage to climb in my window. He will find me wherever I go. London, Cornwall, it will make no difference where I hide. Only with you will I be safe. Do you not see? Ben asked furiously. You will not be with me. I cannot bring you onto my ship. It would never be allowed. There are other ships traveling under your escort, said Corwin. We will sail on different vessels but we will arrive in Virginia together. No matter what Ben might think, she would not, could not, remain here. Sooner or later Black would seek her out, and she refused to imagine what might happen then. I do not know any of the ship's masters well enough to trust you to them and we do not have time to find you a suitable traveling companion. Said Ben. It would not be safe. I insist that you remain here. Corwin drew a shaky breath. She had never disobeyed Ben in all the years since her parents' death. I too have no alternative. She said, refusing to meet his brown eyes. If you do not take me with you, I will book my own passage. Surely not. I cannot remain in England while that madman is loose. When we return from the colonies this wretched business will have been long forgotten. I can make a quiet life in the country. No one need even know that I have come home. Corinne shook her head. Since I do not want to die, you must take me with you. Ben put an arm around Corwin's shoulder and drew her to him as he weighed the alternatives. He knew of at least one ship, the Albatross sailing the same day as his vessel. Though not a large ship, he assumed it would be well armed due to the cargo of gold plate it carried, and he knew the owner by name. Perhaps something might be arranged in the few days remaining. A six-week voyage, a new continent, perhaps the idea made sense after all. It certainly seemed like madness to send his sister home unprotected given the terrible events of the last many weeks. He gave in to the inevitable. I suppose I must see what I can arrange. He said at long last.
Pirate's Desire by Andrea Stewart, voice recording copyright 2019 by Nancy Fulton, music by Alexander Shavarev licensed from Pond 5.